Well, good morning once again. Uh, I'm Pastor Mario, the youth and uh, worship pastor of Randall Church. So we're just blessed to be here uh, this morning. We're going to take the time to open God's word and read and study together. So if you don't mind taking the Bible in front of you or if you brought your own, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 41. We're continuing our study through the life of Joseph, taking a look at Joseph in the book of Genesis. And uh, today I have the privilege of talking about Joseph's experience after suffering for the Lord. So Genesis chapter 41, if you've got a Bible. As you turn there, I want to share with you a couple things. Uh, first of all, um, all of our youth made it back from the mission trip safely. Thank you, Jesus. So we praise the Lord for that. And uh, amen. And uh, at the end of the service, we're going to show a, a video of some of the highlights. But uh, I just want to let you know in a couple weeks, we're going to um, also have a time where the where the youth can share up and, and just let you know what, what happened during the trip and stuff. So we didn't forget about you. Uh, we just want to let you know that we got some things in the works. Several years ago, I had a, um, I, w I would say I had the privilege, but it was actually in a, in a literature class that I was forced to read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And um, yeah, it's kind of funny, you're forced to read. Uh, it, it, I had, I had I had had this book in my collection for probably like 10 years, but never got around to reading it until I was in this class. And so I said, well, now is a better time than ever to read it. And, uh, and I really fell in love with C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. It has absolutely nothing to do with marriage, just so you know that, okay? I hope I'm not giving too much away. But it does absolutely nothing to do with marriage, but it really has to do with the perception of reality and how sometimes what we think is real is completely divorced from what actually is real. And, um, and as we look at Joseph's life, I, I, I kind of drew from um, this idea that Lewis talks about, that sometimes the things that are real are actually broken and they're not real. And there's actually something more real waiting for us in eternity and in a spiritual realm. And the whole book that C.S. Lewis writes here is based on a dream, pretty much, a dream state which really falls in line with the, what we're going to read about today in Joseph's life, where he is able to interpret, uh, interpret Pharaoh's dream. <clears throat> but I want to share with you just a quick portion of what C.S. Lewis writes about the difference between reality and non-reality. And essentially what happens is in this story, this main character finds himself on a bus. And this bus, he's traveling from the gray country into another land. And many people that are with him on the bus find themselves confused. They find themselves at odds because when they get to this other land, things are not as they appear in the gray country. And listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. At first, my attention was caught by my fellow passengers who were still grouped about in the neighbor neighborhood of the bus, though beginning some of them to walk forward into the landscape with hesitating steps. I gasped when I saw them. Now that they were in the light, they were transparent, fully transparent when they stood between me and it, smudgy and imperfectly opaque when they stood in the shadow of some tree. They were in fact ghosts, man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air. One could attend to them or ignore them as you, as you do with the air or on a window pane. I noticed that the grass did not bend under their feet, even the dewdrops did not disturb them. Then some readjustment of the mind or some focusing of my eye took place, and I saw the whole phenomenon the other way around. The men were as they had always been, as all the men I had known had been perhaps. It was the light, the grass, the trees that were different, made of some different substance. 
so much solider than things in our country that men were ghosts by, by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy which was growing at my feet. The stalks wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged to the sweat, stood out on my forehead, and I lost most of the skin off my hands. The flower was hard, not like wood or even like iron, but like diamond. There was a leaf, a young tender beech leaf lying in the grass beside it. I tried to pick up the leaf. My heart almost cracked with the effort. I believe I did just raise it, but I had not. I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than the sack of coal. I was a phantom. Who would give me words to express the terror of that discovery? See, in this story, what happens is that the speaker realizes that the ghost town, the gray town where he's from, is a shadow. It has no substance. However, as he approached in the story what turns out to be heaven, he realizes that there is substance to heaven. And there's a reality that the ghost town, the gray town, will never understand. As we look at Joseph's story this morning, I want to draw some parallels to what C.S. Lewis writes about the gray town and the contrast of the gray town to heaven with the reality that Joseph experiences and is able to share with Pharaoh. So if we're ready, let's jump into uh, Genesis chapter 41. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time we can be together. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word today. I pray, God, that you'd speak to us. I pray that you draw us close to you. I pray that the realities of heaven would become real in our lives today or more real than they have been, if that's the case. And I thank you for your love and your grace and the opportunity we have to be gathered. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 41. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they gazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. Have you ever had a dream like that, that woke you from your sleep? You're not really sure what happened, but it just woke you up? Well, that's what happened to Pharaoh in this dream. He sees uh, seven cows that are um, beautiful, they're big. It says here that they're, uh, they're, they're, they're big and sleek and fat. And then another seven cows come up, and those seven cows are ugly, they're gaunt. And the ugly cows eat up the fat cows. Interesting dream. Wakes Pharaoh up. But like most of us, he falls right back asleep. He fell asleep in verse 5 and had a second dream. The seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. So Pharaoh had a second dream, the Bible says. And in this dream, there was a healthy stock and a not-so-healthy stock. And the not-so-healthy stock ate up the healthy stock. And that startled Pharaoh, so he wakes up. In the morning, verse 8, Pharaoh's mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dream, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. 
So Joseph sent for Joseph, so Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. So if you follow along, what's happening here is Pharaoh is startled by this dream that he has. And as he relates this dream, he realizes that there's no magicians, there's nobody within his court that can interpret this dream for him. And so the, the cupbearer remembers, oh, I remember Genesis chapter 40. I was in prison with the baker, and there was this Hebrew boy, and he was able to interpret our dreams. Pharaoh, that's the guy you need to get to interpret your dream. And so what happens is Pharaoh brings Joseph to the court. Now, as we've been going through the life of Joseph, we've been seeing the ups and downs of Joseph's life. Brian did a great job last week of talking about dirty laundry and about Joseph's experiences and the things that, are, that we, we try to keep hidden. And Joseph surely falls into that category. There was things in his life that didn't go as they would seem. We read from uh, Genesis 39 and 40 where his experiences of uh, becoming a slave in Egypt and then being accused uh, and then being thrown into the prison where he is there and he has an opportunity to serve the Lord. But this morning, as we think about Joseph's life, as we think about what we're going to talk about and what it means to suffer and then to be a servant of the Lord, I want you to know one thing, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down, is that God honors time. God honors time. You see, in Joseph's life, verse 1 of this chapter tells us, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. And then Joseph comes back into play. The Bible tells us in Genesis 37 that when Joseph begins his journey, he is 17 years old. By the time we get to the end of chapter 41, Joseph will be 30 years old. So on the span of four chapters, Joseph goes from 17 years old to 30 years old. However, in those, the span of those chapters, time is kind of like this ambiguous thing. It doesn't really have any, any significance until we get to this verse where it says two full years had passed. In fact, the Bible tells us in Genesis 39.10, it uses this phrase, that Joseph was in Potter's first house from day to day. It doesn't say on March 3rd, 2000 BC. It doesn't give us a date. It just says from day to day. And then when Joseph is thrown into prison, it just says for a while. It doesn't give us a time frame. It's not until we get to verse 1 here that it says two full years had passed that Joseph was remembered. And the Bible doesn't tell us what happened during those two years. It doesn't tell us uh, that Joseph grew a long beard or did he take a shower or not? What did he eat? Did he get to talk to any other people about the Lord? Did he interpret any more dreams? What did Joseph do during those times? We have no idea. It's just this ambiguous time, but yet it's two full years. We know that Joseph during this time while he was in prison, we can trust from what the scripture says that God still blessed him, that he still blessed the Lord. In fact, it says throughout all of the Joseph narrative that Joseph was a successful man, that God made Joseph prosper, that the Lord was with Joseph and showed him kindness, and that, that again, while he was in prison, the Lord prospered him and brought him success. So there's no reason to doubt that during the time of Joseph's imprisonment that God was with him, and that he was with the Lord, fellowshipping with God. You know, as we think about our life, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we willing to wait on God's timing? Are we willing to wait on the Lord and waiting for him to
to work out things in his life? What if God takes a long time to do what you're expecting him to do? What if God takes a long time to do the things that you're anticipating or the things that he's promised? Are you willing to wait on the Lord? I can tell you God honors time. In Joseph's life, it's evident. Whatever God did in Joseph's life during that two years in prison, whatever he was doing in those 13 years since he was first put into slavery, God honored Joseph because Joseph honored time. Many of you may be familiar with the story of William Carey. William Carey was a missionary to India. And if we were to take a look at his life from a worldly perspective, we may think he was not successful. And we would say that because as a missionary, a missionary's job is to do what? To see people come to know the Lord. It took William Carey seven years to see his first convert in India. So by world standards, William Carey might seem like a failure. However, that's not the case. I'd like to read to you uh, a little description of William Carey. This is a little bit long, but I, I think it will bless us this morning. William Carey was raised in an obscure rural village in the middle of England. He apprenticed in a local cobbler's shop where, he, uh, where the nominal Anglican was converted. He enthusiastically took up the faith, and though little educated, the young, young convert borrowed a Greek grammar and proceeded to teach himself New Testament Greek. When his master died, he took up shoemaking, where he met and married Dorothy Plackett, who soon gave birth to a daughter. But the apprentice's life was hard. The child died at age two, and his pay was insufficient. Carey's family sunk into poverty and stayed there even after he took over the business. Carey wrote, I can persevere to any definite pursuit. All the while, he continued his language studies, adding Hebrew and Latin, and became a preacher with the particular Baptist. He also continued pursuing his lifelong interest in international affairs, especially the religious life of other cultures. Carey was impressed with early missionaries and was increasingly dismayed at his fellow Protestants' lack of missions interests. In response, he wrote the book titled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use the Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. That's a long title. He argued that Jesus' great commission applied to all Christians of all times, and he castigated fellow believers of his day for ignoring it. Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. Carey began to develop a heart for missions and for sharing the gospel around the world. In 1792, he organized a missionary society, and he preached the sermon, expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. Within a year, Carey and his friend Thomas, uh, excuse me, uh, his friend John and his family, which now included three boys and another child on the way, were on a ship headed to India. Carey's friend had, uh, Carey and his friend had grossly underestimated what it would cost to live in India, and Carey's early years were miserable. When Thomas deserted the enterprise, Carey was forced to move his family repeatedly as he sought employment that could sustain them. Illness racked the family, and loneliness and regret set in. I am in a strange land, Carey wrote. No Christian friend, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants. But he also stated, well, I have God, and his word is sure. Carey learned Bengali with the help of a pundit, and in a few weeks began translating the Bible into Bengali and preaching to small gatherings. 
when Kerry himself contracted malaria and then his five-year-old son died of dysentery, it became too much for his wife. Dorothy, whose mental health deteriorated rapidly, suffered delusions and threatened Carrie with a knife. She eventually had to be confined to her room and physically restrained. This indeed is the valley of the shadow of death, Carrie wrote. Though characteristically, he added, but I rejoice that I am here notwithstanding and God is here. In October 1799, things finally turned. He was invited to, locate, to relocate to a Danish settlement near Calcutta. Carrie was joined by a few individuals who began printing the Bible and who opened a school for children, and Carrie began teaching at a school. In December 1800, after seven years of missionary labor, Carrie baptized his first convert. Seven years. Two months later, he published his first Bengali New Testament. Carrie and his colleagues laid the foundation for the study of modern Bengali, which up to this time had been an unsettled dialect. By the time Carrie died, he had spent 41 years in India with no furlough. His mission could only count 700 converts in a, in a nation of millions. But he had laid an impressive foundation of Bible translation and social reform. William Carey is recognized as the father of modern missions because of his willingness to serve, because of his willingness to do the hard work, even though it took many years for him to see fruit. You see, God honors time in, in William Carey's life. God honored that. And in Joseph's life, we see, we see here that God honored Joseph's life by allowing him to be sustained while in prison. I wonder this morning what you think success is when it comes to time. Are you looking for quick success or are you trusting in what God has for you in his timing? Because ultimately at the end of the day, what's best for us, what's good for us is what God wants and what is happening according to his time. Let's move on. As we see here, Joseph, after two years, is allowed to come up out of the prison and Pharaoh repeats to him the dream. And beginning in verse 15, we read this. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can, can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And listen to what Joseph says in verse 16. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said, in my dream, and he goes on to explain his dream to, to Joseph. And finally, in verse 25, Joseph says to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what is about to happen. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years, and it is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that, the, that came up after are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain. They are seven years of famine. And then Joseph goes on to explain to Pharaoh that what's about to happen in Egypt is that there's going to be seven years of prosperity, that their crops will be great, they will be able to uh, live in abundance. However, after seven more years, there will be a time of great famine and the people will be in need. As we take a look at this passage of Scripture, it's interesting to note a couple things. First of all, we see that as the Pharaoh re iterates the dream to Joseph, the Pharaoh adds a commentary that's not in the original first uh, 14 verses. Pharaoh mentions that in his dream he sees these cows. And he says, he adds this commentary that the cows 
um, they were so ugly, we had never seen anything like them in all of Egypt. And this phrase is interesting that Pharaoh uses because Pharaoh uses the term that can also be translated as evil. And so Pharaoh is talking about this dream that he has, having this sense of evilness and wickedness to it. There was just this sense of foreboding, which we know, of course, was the famine. But the fact that he uses this term that can also be translated as evil is interesting. He repeats the same thing in verse 21. He talks about, uh, he talks about the stocks um, being evil. And he talks about the fact that he had to look up and that they were just as ugly as before. So it's interesting that this, the phrase is used by Pharaoh. Because the second thing I want you to know this morning is that God is concerned with the good. Even though Pharaoh's dream had an evil connotation to it, God is concerned with the good. Notice there's this contrast between the good cows, the good stocks, and the bad cows, the evil cows, and the bad stocks. This contrast is something that we see uh, happening elsewhere in the scriptures. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, we get the creation narrative. And when God creates Adam and Eve, what does God do? He places in the Garden of Eden a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he places the tree of life. And so this idea of the contrast between good and evil that we see in the creation story is brought forward here in this chapter of Genesis where there's this play on words between the good and the evil. In fact, we see this, hap this going even further. In verse 37, when Joseph tells the Pharaoh what the Pharaoh should do in response to this dream, the Pharaoh says, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So this thought of good versus evil that's being played out within the scriptures here. And I want you to know that this morning God is concerned with the good. You know, it's interesting that through this story we see Joseph rising up to power. We see Joseph coming from the dungeon, coming to the palace. And God uses Joseph to bless the nation of Egypt. Even this theme is a theme that's carried out through all scripture. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 12, when God meets Abraham and says, take a look at the stars. I will be your people. You will, you will be my people and I will be your God. God tells Abraham that he will be a blessing to all the nations and that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the nation. And so we see here in Joseph's life, not only is his wisdom good, but the fact that he comes from that Hebrew line is a good thing. I want you to put this in perspective. Pharaoh at the time is the ruler of Egypt. In all circumstances, Pharaoh was viewed as a deity. He had the power to do things that only God could do. He could call down weather. He could do all these supernatural things within Egypt. But yet here is the ruler of Egypt, unable to even interpret his own dream. And what does he do? He has to call on a Hebrew servant to come. You see, Pharaoh's life, Pharaoh's perspective on reality, just like in C.S. Lewis's story, is altered here. And he realizes that the only good can come from the Lord God and from his servants. Can you imagine what must have happened in Pharaoh's life, how he must have had to humble himself to allow this Hebrew servant to come and to tell the story of what was about to happen? 
And yet God impacts him so much that as I mentioned in verse 37, the scripture tells us that Joseph's plan is considered good in the eyes of Pharaoh. You see, God is concerned with the good. God is concerned with the good things and the way that he is glorified and the way that he is exalted. We sing this song, Great Are You, Lord. God is concerned with the greatness and how we exalt him and how we praise him and how we worship him and how we give him all the glory and how we stand and, and confess him and declare him despite what an unbelieving world sees and despite what an unbelieving world believes. We are called to speak truth just like Joseph did and to bring good to those who may otherwise not know it. Did you know that God has called each one of us as believers to bless non-believers for the sake of his glory? God is concerned with the good, and he wants us to be those individuals who share the good and who pass on the good to those who would otherwise not have heard it or seen it. God is capable of meeting our deepest need and our deepest longing. There was no one like our God. Pharaoh was troubled here as he, inter as he told Joseph the dream. And Joseph says something to Pharaoh that's very unique. Joseph says, God is the one who will give you peace. You see, Pharaoh's dream had gotten him so worked up that he was in a state of, uh, of just craziness. He, you know, he couldn't, he needed to know what this dream meant. Have you ever been in that place before where you're just so wound up, you're anxious, you're uptight because you're not sure what's going to happen, you're not sure what God's going to do? Joseph says to Pharaoh, God will be the one who brings you peace. God will be the one who brings the good out of this situation. You know, we live in a broken world. We live in a world that's fallen, that's broken, and God wants to fix those broken things. This week I had an opportunity to be at Hickory Hill with, with the young uh, Stockade boys, and I wore my sunglasses throughout the week, and I had brought them up here somewhere. I don't know where they're at. They're probably in the back. But from where you're standing, if I were wearing my sunglasses, you wouldn't be able to tell that my sunglasses are broken. There's a small crack in them. It's not until we get face-to-face -face where you look at me and you'd probably think, does Mario know his sunglasses are broken? Right? Anybody ever walk around like that, you know? <laughs> well, they're broken. There's a small crack. There's actually two cracks, but one that's actually uh, goes all the way through. And you can literally pop out the lens and, you know. Uh, but for the most part, they still work. But I feel like that's how most of us are in life. Right? From a distance, people will look at us. We have this facade that we're put together, but yet the closer we get to each other and the closer we get to the Lord and we really see what's going on, we begin to see those cracks. We begin to see the brokenness in our life. God is concerned with the good. And God wants to fix those broken things. And that's what I was sharing with the young boys this week is that even though we live in a broken world, God is willing to fix those things in our life that are broken. Most importantly, the relationship that we can have with him. See, Pharaoh didn't know the Lord. Pharaoh didn't know Jesus. He didn't know God. He only knew there was a Hebrew servant who served this foreign God to Pharaoh, right? But Joseph was able to bring and, and, and share and confront Pharaoh with the, the living God of heaven and earth. And it radically changed Pharaoh's life. Something for us to think about this morning. Is your life broken? Are you like Pharaoh? You don't have peace? Guess what? God wants to fix that. He wants to encounter you where you're at. And the Bible says that it's through Jesus Christ that we have peace with God. It's through Jesus Christ that that, that which is broken can be fixed. 
So even this morning as I'm able to share with you what God's word teaches us in the Old Testament, you can understand that God has a heart for you, God has a concern for you, and he wants the good for you. But it's only going to happen through Jesus Christ. And when you approach Jesus Christ and you understand his love for you. Amen. As we see that, as we see that God is concerned with the good, we also learn something else. And that's that God deserves the honor. God deserves the honor. Notice what it says here in chapter 41, verse 16. When Pharaoh says to Joseph, only you can interpret the dream, Joseph responds by saying, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph immediately turns the attention away from himself and turns the attention towards God's direction. God deserves the honor. This was not something new to Joseph. This just wasn't something that happened in his life. As we've already mentioned, during the time while he was in prison, in the 13 years that we have to the end of this chapter, God was doing a work in Joseph's life. God was doing a work where he was growing closer to God. And so it was no big thing for Joseph to say, you know what? I know God can work in your life because he's working in my life. It's not me, it's God that can do the work. In fact, Joseph already said something similar to this when he met the, the cupbearer and the baker. He tells them pretty much the same thing. He says to them that it's God who is going to be able to interpret the dream. And so in this passage, Joseph is portrayed as an individual who is in a right relationship with God. Joseph is portrayed as an, as an individual who demonstrates what a right relationship with God and man looks like. He, Joseph acknowledges God. He dedicates his life to God and he points to God. It's God who will do the work. It's God who will do the things. And it's only from a life that had that kind of attitude in your life can only come when you've humbled yourself before God. When you've humbled yourself before the Lord and allowed him to work in you. Joseph's life and Joseph have, was definitely humbled by the Lord. And we see a reflection of that now as he gives God all the honor. Joseph acknowledges the work of God. And he's obedient to God's will by, by doing so, by honoring God. But there's something else here as we think about God deserving the honor. Is that just as Joseph then begins to tell Pharaoh the interpretation of his dream, Joseph, the, the Pharaoh says, well, that's good, Joseph. Let's put in, in action the plan that you had. And Joseph says, what you need to do, Pharaoh, is you need to take in seven years, you need to store up all you can because when the famine comes, um, you need to... Uh, have all that reserve in there so you can use that to bless the people with. And Pharaoh says, that's great. And then it says that Pharaoh gives Joseph a wife. And, Joseph, and Pharaoh changes Joseph's name to an Egyptian name. But then what's interesting as we read the rest of the scripture is that Joseph then becomes fruitful and he begins to multiply. Joseph has two sons of his own. And Joseph doesn't name his two sons after an Egyptian name, what does he do? He names them with Hebrew names. Again, as we think about the book of Genesis, we think about the narrative that we've been reading. What did God tell Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? He told them to be fruitful and to multiply. And here's what we see happening in Joseph's life. Because he honored God, what does God do to Joseph? God honors Joseph and allows him to be a blessing by having these children. But yet there's one more thing that happens. Genesis 
I'm sorry, 4157. Sorry, let's jump back to 56. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the world. Hmm. You see, Joseph honored God, and God honored Joseph. And this last verse of this chapter tells us that Joseph literally became the savior of the world. Through his actions, through his wisdom, through God working in his life, all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And all the world was impacted by Joseph's life and by the ministry, if you will, that Joseph has. Man, that's powerful. That's powerful to think about. Can I tell you something this morning? Christian, believer in the Lord, follower of Christ, disciple, believer, whatever you call yourself today. God wants to use you to bless the world. God wants to use you to bless the nations of the world. God used Joseph to bless the nations of the world because Joseph honored him. Honoring God with your life and allowing God to use you to bless the nations. We live in, we live in Buffalo. We live in a strategic location. Do you understand this? I mean, I've only lived here for two years. And I've come very quickly to realize that we have the nations of the world at our footstep. If you're a student at UB or Buff State or wherever you go to school, or even just the businesses that bring in people from around the world, we live in a place where we can impact the entire world. But guess what? It's not going to happen if we're not honoring God and we're not blessing him and seeking opportunity to do so. We live in a strategic place. We live in a strategic time. God wants to use us as a church, as an individual, to bless the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about a blessing of, of giving good thoughts. I'm talking about the, the blessing of being able to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world that is broken. Can you imagine what would happen if each one of us in our daily activity had the opportunity to share Jesus with one person and that person became a believer in the Lord and went to the person they knew and then the person they knew and the person they knew how the gospel would impact our world, would impact our community. We have the resources available to us just like Joseph did and we should use them for the glory of God. We should use them to reach the world. And I'm so blessed as a youth pastor to just come back from the mission trip to the DR and know that you guys blessed us with the opportunity to go and to serve those individuals in the Dominican Republic. And I can't say it enough, thank you so much for, being, for giving us the opportunity to do that. We're going to share in a couple weeks what God did through us, but you were able to bless those people through us. And you also were a blessing to us. I know many of you sent us prayers and you encouraged us as we were there and I want to say thank you for that. And at the end of the day, we pray that it was the Lord who worked through us and worked in us to accomplish his good will so that we could be a blessing to the nations and that we could be a blessing to those all around us. As we take a look at Joseph's life here, as we take a look at Joseph's life here, we also understand that, that Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. That 
Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Savior of the world, where the nations had to come to Joseph just like the nations, the Bible says, will bow down at the feet of Jesus and worship him. And so I pray that this morning each one of us are in a place where we have come to that realization that we've come to honor God with what we say and what we do and what we've done with our life by responding to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This morning, as we've talked, we realize that there's, a, there's an alternative reality to things. There's a way the Pharaoh sees things, there's a way the world sees things, and there's the way that God sees things and the way that we should see things. And the things that are of God are so much more real and so much more important that they are literally, they, they will literally, um, as in the, the great divorce, we, 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 um, they look different, they feel different, they are different. And God's calling each one of us to live in that reality, the reality where we can say, God, I may have suffered, uh, but now I want to walk in your glory, and I want to walk in a relationship with you. And I want to live not in the gray country, but in the realities of heaven. And we know that in the, in the future, we know that heaven is something that we hope for. But what about right now? Are we living in the reality of heaven right now, knowing that that's where we will go to worship our Lord and to serve him? Because if we're not, then time's your worst enemy because you're just going to endure life here on earth. But if you live a life in expectation of what's to come, then every day and every moment becomes a moment where you are worshiping and serving the Lord in what you say and what you do. And that's my prayer for our church today. That regardless of what you're going through, that your eyes will be fixed on the realities of heaven, not the realities of what we see here on earth, and not the realities of what is broken, but in the realities of what God has done and will do in our life. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to speak. Lord, there are some of us here today who need to come to the realization that your glory is the most important thing that we can pursue, that your glory is the most important thing that we can look to. And I pray that for those individuals today, you would speak to them through your word. They would draw close to you. For those who are struggling in their faith, struggling in their life, I pray, God, that you would be the peace and the comfort they need. I pray that you would be the anchor that they cling to, that you would be the rock they stand on, that today, God, they could look towards you and that you would bring peace and comfort into their life and you would bring the good for them, Lord God. Lord, you're beautiful, you're wonderful, and I give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.